Hello and welcome to this edition of the EV Revolution Show audio podcast. With your host, Kenneth Pokor. This is episode 13, recorded on June 26, 2020. This episode of the EV Revolution Show is sponsored by File Sanctuary. Need a great web host for your business? Need to get email at yourdomain.com? They provide professional, feature-rich web and email hosting for any project you have in mind. Get started today at filesanctuary.net forward slash cloud and save 10% with promo code EVREVSHOW. All right, and welcome to this edition of the EV Revolution Show audio podcast. My name is Kenneth Pokor. Thanks for tuning in for episode 13. I'm starting to crank out some of these audio podcasts. I know I've been a little slow in doing that. I have another excellent guest of another smart person that I've been able to find in, the, in the, my local area to talk around about the EV marketplace from a different perspective. This is a really special guest. I would like to love to introduce Sarah Buchanan. She's the Clean Economy Program Manager for Environmental Defense here in Toronto. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, Ken. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty well. Everybody's surviving the lockdown as we're slowly coming out now. Yeah, making it and uh, enjoying uh, enjoying getting outside for some walks now that it's beautiful out. Absolutely. As long as we keep our distancing and the, the masks where it makes sense, it's all good. We will get through this. Thanks again for taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule to chat with me. Now, but the reason I've got you on here, Sarah, is because about, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now, um, there was a report that was released called Clearing the Air. And I know the report is focused more locally here within the, the, the greater Toronto and Hamilton areas, the Golden Horseshoe type of area. If you're, if, for listeners who are um, familiar with the area, if you're not, you can look it up. Um, but I thought that this, you know, the modeling and, and the information that you're presenting here can basically be uh, similar to any major urban area around the world. You know, obviously some tweak, but uh, I thought that that's why it was important to bring it up because you focus on utilizing transportation, one, uh, one method that does add a lot of pollution into helping to clean the air. Exactly. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we, you know, we wanted to do uh, some modeling and create. Uh, some evidence and work with academics as well as uh, the Ontario Public Health Association um, to look at how electric vehicles could potentially improve air quality in mm-hmm. the greater Toronto Hamilton area, uh, as well as reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I know that uh, I have heard a lot about the benefits of um, electric vehicles uh, on slowing climate change and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but I don't always hear as much about the health benefits of electrifying the vehicles on the road. Um, So one of the things we wanted to do is dig into the air quality benefits. And so uh, the modeling that we did showed that switching to electric cars, uh, electric passenger vehicles, as well as uh, electric public transit buses, Mm -hmm. also getting uh, cleaner trucks on the road, not even necessarily Mm -hmm. electric, but uh, just more efficient, that switching to all of those cleaner vehicles in just in the greater Toronto Hamilton area will have a dramatic uh, impact on air quality, uh, reducing traffic related air pollution and save hundreds of lives every single year just in the greater Toronto Hamilton area. Um, And also would reduce a ton of greenhouse gas emissions. um, And actually by 
think nearly 70 percent uh, mm-hmm. in the Toronto Hamilton area reduced uh, sorry reduced the traffic related greenhouse gas emissions by nearly 70 percent. Right. Yeah, it was quite an eye opening report. And even though again it's focused just on on our, our urban area that you mentioned, you know, people can extrapolate numbers for their own region or look at their own areas. And you're absolutely right. You know, there's there's multiple benefits to this. And I know that the study. Um, you guys are a nonprofit organization that promote, you know, clean air and, and environmental uh, wellness. Um, you partnered with University of Toronto, as you mentioned, and, and the Ontario Public Health Association on gathering data, statistics, some of the modeling to produce this report. Um, and I'd like to dive into it a bit because um, some of the numbers here kind of caught my attention. You know, you, you talked about uh, the, the, the health benefits and I guess air pollution just in our urban area. And that swath would cover probably a population of about 6 million, if I have that correct. Is that about right? Around that. So Around, <laughs> you're, yeah, you probably. Well, it'll be different, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But about that, uh, it's fairly populous. About 3,000 premature deaths uh, directly related to air pollution. Uh, and, you know, I know that there were studies done around, you know, um, highway corridors because of the amount mm-hmm. of traffic and pollutants and particulates that come out, you know, within a half a kilometer or 500 meter or something like that swath of, of major highways. Our 401, as an example, that goes through Toronto, how it's been widened and how much traffic has increased over 10, 20, 30 years, how that can lead. And, you know, and people are still living literally right next to the highway. Absolutely. Yeah, particularly people who live um, close to highway interchanges, too. Because that's where you have, you know, two major highways. Look at where the 400 and the 401 intersect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge area and a big red spot in our modeling for uh, for air pollution from vehicles. And that's a huge problem. You know, even if you live close to uh, a major road, uh, like I do in Toronto, I live close to mm-hmm. Dundas. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a highway to impact your health. But um, one of the really, really clear things coming out of this study and many other studies like it uh, is that the closer you live to a major road or highway, the uh, higher your uh, exposure to the harmful air pollution and the greater your risk of things like asthma, uh, lung diseases, lung cancers, childhood bronchitis. Yes. Those nasty things that, that we want to reduce. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've talked about it on my shows about, you know, simple things like just, you know, electrifying school buses, because there are many kids that have very serious asthma and, and uh, lung-related allergies to fumes, to diesel, and to smoke, and they can't even come near a school bus in some cases, you know, it's that mm-hmm. serious. So, you know, that's only one small portion of that landscape, as you mentioned. Now, the, the main pollutants, uh, or actually, before I get to that, I do want to talk about some national numbers. You guys talk about that there's 4.2 per year from an environmental uh, attribution for, for uh, deaths each year. Um, about 7.6% are related to that. Uh, for, that equates in Canada, that's globally. And in Canada, it's 14,600 roughly are attributed to air pollution. Uh, mm-hmm. And the total economic value of health outcomes associated with this would be about 114 billion. I take it that's a global number, is that correct? Uh, the 114 billion, I believe is global, but I, I'm not 100% yeah, sure. I'm so. okay. a little more familiar with the, uh, yeah. the local numbers. Um, and that it's important to note that those those numbers are air pollution as a whole as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, you can also drill down and look at just air pollution from vehicles and from traffic, yeah. uh, which in the greater Toronto Hamilton area um, causes almost 900 premature deaths every year. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite significant. It's it's it not is. something that's widely known. Uh, right. I think because it tends to be chronic exposure over time. 
It's mm -hmm. not uh, necessarily really acute, quick impacts. Um, mm -hmm. but it, does, it builds up and it, um, it also costs us a lot of money. It costs us a lot of money in lost productivity, in healthcare costs, um, you know, just money in people's lives that they could be spending also with their families uh, or working that they're spending, going to the doctor, going to the hospital to get to get checkups for asthma and things like that. I have asthma and mm -hmm. it's something that I, you know, I wish I didn't, um, yeah. but it, uh, it it's frustrating and it takes a lot of time when you do have a, a flare up. Mm -hmm. uh, can't you can't focus on other things when you can't breathe. And it's something that it's hard to describe people who maybe haven't experienced it. But if you are one of those people living with asthma, I think you definitely have lived experience and know that feeling of, of standing next to a, a whole bunch of trucks going by you on a major road and yeah. trying not to breathe that air in because you know how bad oh, it man. is. For sure. For sure. And, you know, I, I'm glad that you're doing well with that. And certainly, you know, we haven't even talked about COVID yet in this conversation, but that's just brought it, brought that type of illness even much more to the forefront with you know the very serious ramifications that um, are linked uh, for covid um, impacts on people that live in areas that have higher pollutant values and you know and smog yeah. and this kind of stuff so it, there, there are there's direct correlation now and more data coming out about that if you live in somewhere like shanghai or la or whatever new york in the normal normalcy of those cities your if you catch COVID, the likelihood of it being more serious and and requiring an ICU or maybe even ventilation mm -hmm. is greater in those type of uh, environments. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. And and there's starting to be more uh, conclusive studies linking uh, air pollution to vulnerability to the worst impacts of of COVID nineteen and other respiratory illnesses, mm -hmm. um, and also showing who is most impacted as well. So as I mentioned live closer to a highway or a major road, um, you're more likely to be more impacted. And so, you know, there, there's also an equity angle and, and an unfairness to it, where um, if you live close to a major road or highway, uh, you're already experiencing greater health impacts. And, mm. and so you know, you're going to have more air pollution piled on and then be more at risk. Um, yep. And also, you know, demographic studies have linked uh, proximity to highways and major roads, particularly highways with income levels. Um, so you're also more likely to potentially be low income, facing other socioeconomic barriers uh, in, the, in, the, in the states, particularly uh, racialized uh, communities tend to live closer to, to highways and uh, mm -hmm. sources of industrial mm -hmm. pollution. In Canada, many indigenous communities also yep. um, are exposed to a whole lot more air pollution, particularly from industrial sources. Absolutely. So, you know, there's, there's a definite unfairness to it and mm -hmm. not who is exposed to uh, air pollution, but who suffers the most from those impacts. Yeah. And then that kind of, you know, adds on to uh, resilience and, and vulnerability to uh, diseases like COVID-19 when they come mm -hmm. along. Yeah. You know, that's a great, uh, a, a great statement that you've made. I mean, we are seeing a world of unfairness unfold in much more dramatic fashion. In many different areas and that is true you know when you, you mentioned about the, i saw that part about the demographics and the income relating that to, to to economic status and you know real estate is location 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 right so if you want something on a beach it's going to cost you a lot more than something that's right next to a highway just as common sense so affordability comes into that hence the reason why you're seeing those kind of demographics and economic statistics come out in in general again we're generalizing um you know in, in that in that sense um, 
before we get into some more monetary information that I drilled into the report, um, the the greenhouse gas emissions that you're tracking in most cases here are based on three major pollutants, if I have this right, fine particulate matter, um, nitrogen dioxide, and I've got, uh, I didn't know what O3 is, I had to look it up, ground level ozone, which was pretty cool, I didn't mm -hmm. know about that. You talk about mm -hmm. black carbon as well. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we all know carbon dioxide. That's you know one of the big ones that we talk about. Um, but you know, are there? That seems to be the majority of the major pollutants that are impacting both health and climate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, those those were the major ones, and there are some there are some other um, VOCs, volatile organic compounds, and other there are other pollutants that interact in the atmosphere and create other pollutants. Um, and, you know, the scientists working on this uh, can tell you a whole lot more about them. Yeah. But it did learn a whole lot about how, for example, ground level ozone isn't something that's necessarily released right away from tailpipes. It's formed mm -hmm. a little bit later in the atmosphere, but mm -hmm. has a huge impact on uh, air quality as well. So yeah, we you know, to, uh, pick the major ones uh, that impact <laughs> people's health and yeah. uh, focus on those. Yeah, a few things I learned because I didn't know I'm not into the science side of this. I, I you know, I've taken a few light climate change kind of webinars and to try to catch up to it. it it's a very much a science in its own, but it's really interesting that you guys lay this out in, in an easy way to understand. And, um, okay. you know, obviously we talked about the health benefits, you know, respiratory, lung cancer, all that kind of stuff that you mentioned. And so what, what you guys did is some modeling. You took, you took a, a mix of the statistics of the types of vehicles on the road. And I know that you pulled data from StatsCan for 2016 primarily, which mm -hmm. was the last census for that. Um, mm -hmm. Looking at about, for Ontario only, so for the province of Ontario, you looked, uh, there's about eight and a half million uh, vehicles totally on the road. About eight million of those are light, you know, duty vehicles under 4,500 kilograms. So your cars, your SUV, your light trucks, your pickup trucks, all that kind of stuff. So the vast majority are cons mainly consumer or small or, or small, you know, commercial business type vehicles um, that are on the road. You get into the heavy duty, you know, dump trucks and tractor trailers and construction equipment and this kind of stuff. You, then you're, you're about 250,000, so a smaller percentage. You've talked about public transit, about 30,000 buses in, in, uh, on the road, probably more by now, and including school buses, and then uh, about 220,000 motorcycles and mopeds. If this would be the, the country of India, I think the numbers would be flipped, but <laughs> there'd be much more of those on the road. But in here, you know, we're, it's fairly seasonal uh, to run a motorcycle and a moped, so the hands up, there's not that many. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that, that was an interesting stat uh, because I do talk to, to viewers and listeners about uh, the sense that consumer-based transportation is a big contributor to greenhouse gas uh, emissions, and this kind of validates that. Huge. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, those, those passenger vehicles, you know, the cars and, and trucks and SUVs or light trucks and SUVs uh, that people drive just to get around day to day, vast majority of vehicles on the highway. And yep. they absolutely have a huge impact on air quality and on, on greenhouse gas emissions. So those choices that we're making uh, around which vehicles to buy have a massive impact on our carbon footprint and on air quality and, and the health of all the people around us. And it's not something um, that most consumers really think about, I guess, it is how, how will the vehicle that I am thinking of purchasing impact the health of the people around me? Um, right. it, it's a huge factor. Um, so consumer preference is, is I'm sure, as you know, very difficult to, uh, very difficult to change and control. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the thinking we did around this report was from a policy perspective, how can government policies 
influence consumer behavior, uh, support people in making a healthier choice, um, help you know help electric vehicles re uh, reach price parity and mm -hmm. and get closer to uh, gas powered vehicles and uh, and make that consumer choice a little bit easier to to make uh, in a healthy way. Yeah, I definitely want to come back on that because that's part of what I want to go through. I'd like to talk about some of the modeling now and get into some of the meat of the report. So you did various modeling scenarios um, with your partners talking about, just, you know, leaving stuff as a base case. If we just continued as is, you know, what would happen? And then if we switched from 100%, you know, from 20% of cars to uh, fully electric, uh, 50 and 100, I'm going to just focus on the 100% model because that's kind of the best case scenario. And then mm -hmm. there's some uh, modeling around the trucks inside of it as well. Um, so for, for switching to a hundred percent from what I gathered, um, that you, that would mean about, uh, 313 fewer premature deaths per year in your, in your case. Um, and if you added trucks into that mix, that would increase it another 275 or so, um, uh, for that. And you equated a cost and I want to, I want to kind of zoom in on that, uh, in social benefits, um, mm -hmm. including, uh, of about 2.4 billion and with a B, it's a big number per year. Um, and then if you added in electrifying transit, another 1.1 billion on top of that. And then you added trucks, you're adding another 2.1. So focusing on that 2.4, if we took transit and, and commercial trucking out of it for a sec, um, can you tell me a little bit more about that number, what it represents? Yeah, so what that number represents uh, is... It's based on a um, it's based on a method that in epidemiology they call the value of statistical life. So what it represents essentially is people's willingness to pay a certain amount to reduce their risk of death. And it sounds very strange and kind of cold and calculating, uh, it but does, it's yeah. a, a well used tool in epidemiology. So you know, for example, if you're applying for a job where uh, it's quite dangerous they are most likely going to pay you more to do that job than they would a yes. job that's less dangerous. And mm -hmm. so what is that difference in wage? Uh, insurance companies have, have gone to a lot of trouble to cost that out. Uh, and epidemiologists have, have incorporated those sort of calculations into this. So, um, so what it tells us is, you know, right now, according to industry and productivity and things like that, what is it, what is it worth financially and economically to, uh, to make people safer and reduce their risk of death. And it's a very, uh, it's a tough thing to get across. It's not, it's not a media friendly soundbite. Um, right, right. What I will also say is that doesn't include direct costs to the healthcare system. So the mm -hmm. actual social benefits, the actual economic benefits of uh, improving air quality are much higher than this. Yeah. Um, we have a, a number in there that has been calculated per electric passenger vehicle. So for mm -hmm. every electric passenger vehicle that replaces a, a gas-powered vehicle on the road, um, about $10,000 in social benefits is created. Yep. And that is that number is actually much higher when you think about healthcare system costs. So it's kind mm -hmm. of an underestimation. But then when you compare that to, for example, how much our government subsidy is currently for electric vehicles, um, which is five thousand mm -hmm. dollars. It's actually a very smart investment. It's generating a lot of economic benefits um, in order to help people buy electric vehicles, and yep. it's it's helping not just the people who are purchasing the vehicle. It's helping the people around them. 
who are impacted by that air pollution. So that's mm -hmm. something I wanted to show is uh, that there are a lot of spin-off benefits that we don't always think about um, when providing subsidies for electric vehicles. I know it's been hotly debated and, yes. uh, and that there's been criticism of, uh, of you know, government's incentives in Ontario. We had an incentive, I think, of $14,000 per vehicle yeah. um, mm -hmm. until recently. And, and so uh, it's just something to think about that it's not necessarily as simple as throwing money at it. It's also generating a whole lot of benefits, uh, of, of savings to people and savings also to our healthcare system. Absolutely. I mean, you know, numbers actually, you know, quant help to quantify it, right? Bring it down to some to more of an understanding phase. And you're absolutely right that, you know, right now in Ontario, we only have the federal incentive to take advantage of. In other provinces like Quebec and BC, you can stack additional provincial incentives and, and also scrappage programs and things like that, like in BC. Um, so, you know, that, those numbers are going to be even better, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, when you factor in those incentives. But looking at, at your use case here in Ontario, um, you know, that 2.4, I was, you know, that caught my eye. I was going, okay, how did you guys figure that out? You explained some of that. Uh, I asked you for a bit more information on, on the number of vehicles that you would use to calculate that. And you guys came back with something around the three and a half million vehicles. So if all of a sudden tomorrow we, we snapped our fingers and we were able to exchange three and a half million vehicles for all electric vehicles, um, what would the cost in government subsidies be to do that? And I worked some numbers of about 17, almost $18 billion. If, if mm. the government, you know, gave 5,000 bucks for every one of those vehicles to take out, you know, to be exchanged, it would cost about 18 billion. Your numbers of about 2.4 billion per year, which we know are low now, because we're not factoring really in the health side of the equation. I worked out a, a kind of a, an ROI on that, on that investment that the government would have to make of about seven years. It's actually going to be less if we, if we tackle in the health benefits, it's probably going to be closer to five years, maybe even four. That's if we just spent that bucket of money today. We know that it, that doesn't happen though. It's a gradual change, but I thought that if I could quantify it that way, it would just kind of make things uh, a little bit easier to understand because that's not a very long time. Five years is a very short time. And if you, you talk to anybody in business, if they could do, if they could make a substantial investment like that and recoup it in five years, they would say, why wouldn't I do that? Right. No, I think that makes sense. That's uh, clarify that, you know, from a, from a public policy perspective, yeah. um, that, that money isn't going to be directly flowing back uh, in tax revenues to, to the government in that traditional way uh, that you might think, but it, that, that economic benefit will be flowing to everybody uh, in, in Canada. Um, so uh, that's a really interesting calculation. And I think what it shows and, and what our research also shows is just that it, it's absolutely worth it. Uh, the health of, of the people in your country is absolutely worth it. Um, I think that first and foremost, saving, saving those lives is, is absolutely worth it. And on top of that, additionally, the economic benefits are worth it. It is worth investing uh, research and money into electrifying the vehicles on our roads because we absolutely have to do it. I totally agree. And, uh, you know, we're obviously seeing again those investments that you make and the, the government incentives with what's going on in COVID, right? Not only to, to provide economic stimulus for people impacted, but in R&D and, you know, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars going into trying to find a cure, a vaccine and research, better ways to, to treatment and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's certainly, I mean, there's, here's an example of a health benefit, right? That's just going crazy. 
uh, over a health situation, excuse me, that's going crazy. So it definitely happens. Now, one thing I took out of your report, which was interesting, and I do want to talk about trucks for a sec. I mean, I think we can all level set that switching to EVs, not only the benefits that the vehicle brings to you with instant torque and quiet ride and, you know, zero emission and, and low maintenance and uh, really good TCO values, even though we don't have cost parity yet. And we are going to get into your recommendations near the end. But I also saw a couple of stats here, graphs that you have, and I encourage, we'll give you the website at the end, of that uh, the, the premature death numbers were attributed higher from a ratio to trucks, to mm -hmm. uh, commercial vehicles, yet the higher amount of greenhouse gas emitters are cars and SUVs. Can you explain that yeah. to them? <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's a, I'll explain it because the way we did this study influenced that. Uh, so large, you know, heavy commercial vehicles, trucks absolutely do have a big carbon footprint. But because our scenario for trucks wasn't fully electrifying them, mm -hmm. our scenario for trucks was uh, making them much, much newer, taking the old clunkers, the really yes. big commuters off the road and replacing them with newer, more efficient trucks. Those um, trucks you don't want to be stuck behind on the stop and go where they're every time they step on the, the accelerator, a big puff of black smoke comes out. Right? <laughs> exactly. So yeah. taking those off the road, taking the worst offenders off, because we wanted to yeah. see if there was a low hanging fruit scenario for trucks. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and as we suspected, it made a huge impact on air quality. But because we're not totally electrifying those trucks and with the passenger yeah. vehicles, our scenario is totally electrifying them. Um, it looks like the greenhouse gas emissions impact uh, is is much lower for trucks. It's just that the mm -hmm. greenhouse gas emissions coming out of a newer, more efficient truck uh, are are not that different from an older truck. Um, right. Whereas when you have a, a you know an ICE vehicle versus an EV, the emissions difference is really big. So if we took all the trucks on the road and electrified them which I kind of wish we'd had the funds to do that scenario as well. <laughs> True. Um, yeah. that, that would definitely have a big impact on carbon footprint. And in fact, we do have um, in our base case scenario, there's, there's an assessment of how much greenhouse gas emissions are coming from uh, trucks. Mm -hmm. uh, just in, and I'm trying to find it here, uh, but they do create quite a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So yeah. Looking at the chart as well, it just seemed, you know, that that orange one, and, and again, we'll give people the website link so they can go look at the report and the graphs and everything, but mm -hmm. it does look like, you know, it's the, the, it's less amount of GHG emissions, yet it's a more serious impact on health from mm -hmm. a severity perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, trucks yeah. Are, are pretty much the worst, and old truck, yeah. the absolute yeah. worst uh, for health impacts. Yeah. So yeah. getting them off the road is really important. And there's, you know, as, as the data as of 2016 shows around 250,000. So there's not that many to actually deal with if we were, if the government wanted to create some more uh, strong policies around commercial transport in general. We're not even talking trains and airlines and all that stuff. And mm -hmm. public transit, I, we won't dive into that, but uh, I certainly support electrifying public transit and there's tons of benefits. I don't know if one stat that you knew, but I'll throw it out there. China has been, of course, extremely big on electrifying public transit in their, their movement to help with their GHGs. Um, and uh, I know that um, there's a number of about 450,000 buses, probably more by now, that they've been able to swap out for electrification. Uh, through another analyst that I talked to in the U.S., 
they've equated that number of buses to about 23 million cars in the equivalency of greenhouse gas emissions. That's an astounding, you know, when you now you're going, wow, you know, so I'm big on electrifying transit because from GHG perspective, health, maybe not as much uh, because there's not that many, right. Than the other ones, the other ones are more, Well, but they also, they operate where people walk exactly live. So the per vehicle impact of of switching over a bus, uh, when you think about it, um in terms of exposure is really big because they Mm, are driving around in densely populated communities where people are standing waiting for buses they're right outside Mm. um people are cycling behind the bus and so i you get a little bit more bang for your buck absolutely and i was going to bring up some of the the policy recommendations that you guys make and again we're focusing we're talking more about the 100 percent scenario i know you guys broke it down to different scenarios um, but you know, in the policies, our policies, uh, some of those are red going, gee, we're, we're already talking about this stuff, or yeah. we, we have been talking to, we're blue in the face about some of this stuff. Um, so, you know, to improve vehicle types, let me, I'm trying to get to that. Um, and, and of course, you know, there is an argument about, you know, the incentive program. So first thing, uh, is, you know, should we be keeping the, the EV vehicle incentive going, uh, yes or no? Yes, I, I believe it's a it's a smart investment. I don't think, though, it is the most important uh, policy in in the package that we recommended. Right. So the top of the pack uh, for us was really um, a zero emission vehicle mandate. Yes. And you know, we felt we had an advisory committee that we worked with uh, with lots of uh, folks working both in public health and electrification and, and climate change. And um, there was broad agreement that. Having a regulatory tool from government to um, to ask automakers or, or regulate automakers to switch over to selling more electric vehicles and, and hitting those targets was really important. So it addresses uh, the availability issue, making sure that there are electric vehicles when people want them and need to buy them, uh, as well as helping to bring those prices down by you know mass production and scale, um, yeah. and and having to make more of them and having to market them. Because right now, you know as well as I do that the marketing dollars behind uh, electric vehicles just are, you know, are not the same. And yep. uh, going to, you know, big SUVs, the F-150s, yeah. uh, they're going to the polluters. And, uh, and so having a ZEV mandate would help to change that dynamic in a way that uh, an incentive might not be able to. But the incentive is really yeah. an important tool to help accelerate that shift as well. Um, until we get that price parity um, and electric vehicles become uh, more, more widely produced. Totally agree. And that's a national uh, ZEV mandate that you're proposing from a policy. Mm-hmm. So for the provinces that don't have that, which is pretty well most of Canada, um, except I think for Quebec and BC, I think has BC now fully implemented a ZEV mandate? So they have? Yeah. Okay. So we're kind of connecting yeah. everybody else into that. And I totally agree with you. Um, you know, you mentioned about the the automobile manufacturers. I, I talked to a gentleman from Ford on my last podcast, and you know, again, they struggle with well, Canada has only like two million vehicles a year as a marketplace, you know, on average, and about two and a half to three percent of those are EVs. So when you look at the numbers, it's not a big market for Ford, GM, Chrysler, and and on and on to ramp up to sell vehicles to, right? So. Uh, I always remind viewers and listeners that Canada is a very small market on the automotive scene, you know, on, on the transportation scene from that, just because we're only what 36 million 
not even 40 million people then I mean, Mexico City is almost as big as Canada. Never mm-hmm. mind anything else. So, you know, you look at the top five auto markets of, you know, um, the China, U.S. or North America, Europe, uh, and Japan, and there's one other, maybe India might be another one in there. Uh, but those are kind of the largest markets that the OEMs kind of factor in, and every, everything else kind of filters down from them. So, yes, it's important. So that's I'm not defending them. I'm just stating that the business that they're in is to make money. So as a business decision, they struggle with trying to push, you know, trying to to do what you and I want them to do. And I think mm-hmm. the only way to help them push them to do that is by implementing a national ZEV mandate. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about that, you know, two percent, two point five percent of the Canadian market that that is electric vehicle, that's like automakers also create the market for types of vehicles. They have a role to play in Mm -hmm. in doing that. It's not just something that people magically um, come to a conclusion on their own. They do respond to advertising and promotional dollars. So um, so I I do think that we need to give a a bit of a nudge and a push for automakers to um, to put as much effort into creating that market for electric vehicles as they as they put into creating the market for these huge gas guzzlers. Mm-hmm. But you know, they say to me when I say something similar to what you just said, well, nobody's asking for it. I mean, so we're going we're going to where people are asking for. They want SUVs. They want you know pickup trucks. They want these higher margin vehicles that we'd love to make. But nobody's really coming to us asking for EVs. And I think part of that is education in, into the general consumer base. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, and I would take that with a, a grain of salt. I have yeah. heard a lot of folks who've been to been to dealer lots and asked for uh, asked to test drive electric vehicles and been told, "Well, we don't really have any right. available." Um, so, you know, there are often issues with availability, and uh, yeah. I'm not pointing any fingers at who that who's to blame for that. But yeah. fact is, they do exist and they need to be addressed. Yeah. And a ZEV mandate is uh, is is a, a proven tool. Uh, to help address that as well. We know that there's more EVs being shipped to Quebec um, mm-hmm. than there are to uh, Ontario right now. And that's because they sure. have a state in place. Correct. They have, a, they have people wanting to buy EVs more, more than they do in Ontario. And you're absolutely correct. It, it's a culture that's been set for decades, right? You know, the, the internal combustion culture. We've I mean, been mm-hmm. around you know, 110 years or whatever, um, even though EVs have been uh, have a, a longer history. <laughs> you go back to the mid 18th century, uh, you know, and, uh, and Thomas Edison driving a thousand miles across the U.S. in a, a fully electric vehicle. I mean, back in 1880 or something like that. I mean, these are, you know, people don't know that. But um, you know, what one? It's like the Sony and and uh, or the, the the VHS and Beta situation, right? One one out, and that became the the adopted standard, mm-hmm. uh, even though the other one was better. <laughs> you're probably too young to remember that, but uh, I'm a little older, so uh, I'm a lot older, so I'll, I'll remember that. I do remember VHS. Uh, you going, you beta, what the heck is that? Cars to VHS right now. Is yeah. that, is that what go. I mean? All right. I don't feel that old. Then. At least you remember that. <laughs> and then other recommendations, of course, uh, you mentioned price parity, and, and I always talk about that. I mean, you know, analysts like Bloomberg are predicting 2025, 2026. You know, I always ask the OEMs that. Again, part of it is the supply and demand if consumers want that. Part of, a lot of it has to do with the supply chain costs coming down, which they have dramatically over the last decade. Um, I do see you know, cost parity happening around mid this decade as well, plus or minus a year or so into that. Uh, and, you know, unless, again, the pandemic, you know, because this pandemic could shift everything off mm-hmm. from a timing perspective just because of what's happened. But that's certainly important because it's hard to 
as a consumer to walk into a dealer looking for a, you know, a, a fully loaded Civic at 30 grand and I have to pay 45,000 for a Nissan Leaf. I'll pick on Nissan because I own one um, mm-hmm. and relatively the same car, you know, size wise and, and versatility wise, but you know, for 15 grand more or 20 grand more, like, yes, there is a TCO, but you know, I think right now during these economic uh, uh, times of uncertainty, that consumers are going to lead with their with their pocketbook and say, well, I, you know, if I really need a new car, I'm just going to go with the cheapest I can find. Yeah, no, it's it's a huge concern, and I think now is also the time to to ask the question of of what role can uh, governments play mm-hmm. in in addressing this massive crisis that we're facing. Um, it's it's something that the marketplace is not going to fix by itself, and so if our governments can take leadership to help accelerate the shift that has to happen um, in our in our transportation sector and can can help find ways to just move that process forward, accelerate it to reach price parity um, when we need it to happen for our health and for our climate. I think that's absolutely reasonable. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I think we need to have a real acknowledgement that um, that government policy has a role to play in helping to to shift consumers. And and bring them on side, and to shift automakers and bring them on side as well. Um, and and obviously everyone needs to have a voice in that process, and to make sure it works for everyone. But uh, it needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely correct. And you know other other things that you've highlighted here about in continued investments in EV charging infrastructure, which we've seen a lot of, and it does continue to grow. So that's good. You know, strengthening fuel efficiency regulations for cars. We can't forget. I mean, people think that electrification is going to happen overnight. Some people like Tony Siva, God bless him. I, I wish it would happen overnight. But the reality is ICE fees are here for decades. This isn't something happening overnight. So in the meantime, if we can make them even leaner and even better at the mm-hmm. emission, while we focus on that shift to electrification, that will all help. Uh, you also have, you know, public transit commitments. To look at shift and pro and federal and provincial programs to help that. I love the idea of a truck scrappage program. I thought, is there anybody running that in Canada? I was looking around for programs in Canada actually, um, and I found a lot in California and and around the world, but uh, I couldn't find examples, uh, good examples in Canada. It would be great to see. I mean, I know Ontario had a, a green commercial vehicles program. It wasn't a scrappage right. program, but they did have. Um, some programs geared to helping to shift the hip shift truck fleets over. Um, Retrofitting, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. 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 And we see car scrappage programs in Canada, but um, it would be great to see it shift over to the truck market because I think that's, uh, you know, as we point out in our report, that's low-hanging fruit. Um, yep. It's just shifting the trucks that are out there to cleaner models. Yeah, and I would love to see another recommendation of the low-emission zones that you talk about. Um, you know, London's implementing that. A lot of major urban centers around Europe and more progressive countries are are looking to do that or have done that. I mean, there are swaths in downtown Toronto that we should have as non-vehicular zones and pedestrian and transit-only zones, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like city centers, proper city center type of uh, areas. And, you know, I, well, London's, if you look at what they're doing in the UK, they're going full tilt now into this low emission, right? They're going to really be clamping down it wasn't just you, you had to have a sticker for for wednesday and saturday now you it's going to be you're not coming in yeah yeah they're uh they're ramping that up no it's it, it would be great to see that in the toronto area and mm-hmm. i think that's um not just in the downtown area but also thinking about um inner suburbs um areas mm-hmm. like i mentioned where you know the, where the 400 and the 401 intersect yeah. uh, and people lots of people live around there 
um, having, you know, having sort of a regional focus as well on, okay, how do we encourage uh, the vehicles that are coming into this area to be cleaner? Um, how do we, and, and also it, it's, it's a potential revenue tool for governments in order to fund some of these transitions that we're talking about. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I would love to see some thought put into uh, a low emission zone in, in and around Toronto. Yeah, I would love to see that as well. So, you know, uh, we're wrapping up here and I appreciate your time, Sarah. I mean, the takeaway here is that this report proves that, um, you know, it, by going green in the transportation areas that we talked about and making some, a lot of those policy changes and recommendations that you mentioned, we can really see the impacts very positively on a healthier and more resilient population in any area that does that, including, you know, of course, fewer deaths and significant social benefits. You're able to quantify that to some numbers, and we're in those numbers are even low. It's going to be much better than that uh, when you factor in in the in the health side. And then also, again, the big the big really uh, uh, end goal here is the contribution to climate change targets, right? Because we know Canada's lacking. We know we're still behind, uh, you know, what we committed to in in different accords. Um, and this is one area to really look at that big picture, because whether you call it climate change or global warming or global cooling or whatever, stuff mm -hmm. is happening, right? We're, we're seeing weather events that are much more random, severe stuff that, you know, I remember as a kid, you know, more consistency in, in, in seasons. And now it's all over the map and uh, it's just going to continue to get weirder. And you look at things going around the world. Any more main takeaways from that? Um, you know, I, I would just say that one of the things we we didn't really discuss in the report and look at that is important to think about is is also um solutions to get people out of cars who mm -hmm. can be taking other modes of, of transportation and that's also a really important way to reduce traffic related air pollution and reduce greenhouse gas emissions and uh absolutely like lots of folks do need cars to get around um and go longer distances etc but if we can, uh, if we can improve transit, if we can get people out cycling um, and, and provide safer infrastructure for them to both cycle and walk to the places they need to go to, that's going to go a really long way. And, and, you know, in a lot of the communities that are heavily impacted by traffic-related air pollution, ironically, right now, people can't afford to buy electric vehicles. They can't right. necessarily afford to participate <laughs> in uh, some of the solutions being put forward. So thinking about solutions like cycling for folks within their community um, mm -hmm. and, and also affordable solutions like walking um, and better transit is also really, really important. Absolutely. And, you know, for folks that are picking up on what you and I have discussed today and said, what can I do if I can't afford to buy an EV right now? But, you know, I, I could certainly get out and walk and cycle more, but what else can I do? Well, you know, it starts with, with politics. Unfortunately, that's the, the route you have to go. So start with your town councillor your local regional or city councillor start with your minister of provincial parliament your mpp in your local area even go federally you know use those channels of communication to express your concerns and your thoughts and things that you would like to see because if enough voices do that uh, officials tend to listen and then look to enact those into into policy and reforming of policies exactly yeah just sending a quick note to everyone who represents you yeah. at any level <laughs> telling them that uh, about the kind of change you want to see or that you support yeah. uh, a shift in our transportation systems to to cut yeah. emissions um that makes a difference especially if it's a personal note absolutely and i'm not downplaying the need for marches and, and protests and and 
you know, consortiums and things like that. I mean, there's a need for that as well. But, you know, you're absolutely right. I find that just navigating what's there, the, you know, the political landscape and reaching out to the people that are there to serve you, are there to work with you, to represent you, goes a long way. It can actually, you can, you can do a lot of change. You can affect change and impact things if enough people get involved. So how can people find this report and look at all the nice graphs and read more detailed information that we did not get into today? Well, they can go to our handy website, clearingtheair.ca, and you can find about a million different versions of this information, <laughs> short versions, long versions, yeah. graphic versions, map versions. Um, no, but there's a, there's a shorter report there. There's a longer report for the real policy wonks and folks who want the deep detailed data. And there's a, there's a press release, there's a blog. Um, and there's also some really fun uh, maps that you can uh, you can slide back and forth to see how different uh, scenarios impact air pollution. Uh, mm -hmm. so you can compare, you know, the truck scenario to the EV scenario and see see what impacts uh, people where and and where it's going to reduce air pollution. Um, so maybe if you live in the Greater Toronto Hamilton area and you want to see what's going to be the best solution for you, I really encourage you to go to clearintheair.ca and check out uh, some of the maps and information there. That's awesome. And I, again, I would encourage people that don't even live in this area to have a look because you can look at some of that data and the analysis and the visual maps and uh, stats and articulate that, factor that into your own area where you live and, and you know, kind of determine similar impacts right in your own area. So certainly worthy. Well, I, again, I want to thank Sarah Buchanan, the Clean Economy Program Manager for Environmental Defense for taking the time out of her busy day to talk to me today and to enlighten me on the health benefits of electrification in various aspects and, and other things, the increased public transit and all kinds of good things here. It's a great report. It was very much an eye opener. Uh, is there any anticipated follow up to this that you guys are planning? Well, we have been, uh, you know, we've been talking to lots of wonderful uh, policymakers. So <laughs> I, uh, I hope there will be uh, some follow up in the sense that some of the solutions that are already on the table that we're already talking about uh, might happen faster um, and or, or might remain in place. Uh, you mentioned the, you know, the incentives for electric vehicles. So mm -hmm. we would like to see those stay. Um, and, uh, and we're going to keep working with, with lots of the, uh, folks who are, are also in impacted communities, um, talking about solutions, in, including things like cycling and walking and transit, uh, in addition to electric vehicles. So you'll yep. continue to see lots of petitions and lots of advocacy opportunities from us at environmental defense. Um, if you want to check out our website, just Google environmental defense, Canada, and uh, if you want, you can sign up for tons of, uh, you know, petitions, email advocacy opportunities to, to ask, uh, ask your government for these kind of solutions. Excellent. Excellent. Well, you may see Sarah and I on, you know, at, at the head of a march one day. Who knows? Bright orange vest as usual. Exactly. Exactly. Well, again, thank you very much, Sarah. It's been very enlightening. Uh, I wish you guys all the best of success, and I look forward to uh, chatting with you in the future about some follow-up. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Ken. And for everybody listening, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to the audio podcast. Please, I hope everybody is staying safe and following uh, public guidelines wherever you live. And until the next show, um, you know how to find me. You can always watch my videos at the EV Revolution channel on YouTube. Please check those out as well and subscribe. 
and I'll try to get a little bit more frequent on these podcasts as we move forward. Again, it's just tough to find people sometimes that want to talk. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.